The typical way to separate out Roman history is sometimes split into two parts or sometimes into sort of like three parts. Um, and when I say typical, I mean what you find in a lot of college classes or like Wikipedia articles or high school textbooks. And that is, they'll split it geographically, Eastern and Western. And if it's three parts, they'll, sl they'll split it into the Republic, the Empire, and then the Byzantine Empire. Sometimes it helps if I draw this out, but I, I'm, I'm going to try to explain this without drawing it out. Just way to understand this is it all goes back to Gibbon again, right? I, we're going to be following in Gibbon's trail for almost the entirety of this class because much of our misconception, much of our misunderstanding about history, not just Roman history, is tied up in that book. Because even though the book is called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, it does not stop where you expect it to stop. Because he considers basically all European history to be a legacy of the Roman Empire, and so that's why the book is so gigantically long. According to Gibbon, there's the Republic, the Roman Republic. It's changed into an empire with the rise of Caesar Augustus. And that falls, call it 450, call it 473, some point in the mid to late 5th century, because the barbarians, the hordes of barbarians, sack Rome. And then what follows is a steady decline of the remnants of the, of the Roman Empire, which he then calls the Byzantine Empire. This might be a thing you had to learn about in school, the Byzantine Empire, the remnants of Rome centered on the city we now call Istanbul. At that time it was called Constantinople, built on the ruins of a Greek city called Byzantium. From Byzantium we get Byzantine Empire. All of this you can find in Gibbon or Wikipedia or your typical like History Channel documentary. And I would say it is not just unhelpful, but distractingly wrong. Really unhelpfully wrong. It is, makes much more sense to divide up the Roman state into a sort of a first one and a second one. And the division is not the sack of Rome by the barbarian hordes. The division is the crisis of the third century, the anarchy. And let me explain why this division makes more sense. In the first Roman Empire, before the anarchy, before the crisis of the third century, Rome is essentially a multicultural state roughly divided between those who speak Latin or some one of its derivatives and those who speak Greek and one of its derivatives no one religion is followed by the majority of people. And the capital of this state is Rome. Right? The city of Rome is the, the backbone, the centerpiece, the focus of state power. And being from Rome is the single most important thing about its powerful citizens. Because being from Rome 
grants you a status, a legal a set of legal protections, economic protections. And so that what we see is this scramble by the people outside of Rome, how can I too get this status? How can I become a citizen of Rome? But the simple answer is, well, if you're rich enough, you can buy into it. Or at the bare minimum, you can move to Rome so that your children will be citizens of Rome. The second Roman Empire, after the anarchy, after the crisis of the third century, is a completely different animal. Never again is Rome the capital of the Roman Empire. For a time, it's in Ravenna. It moves around the Italian peninsula before settling under Constantine in the ancient Greek city of Byzantium, which he renames Rome. The city is named Rome, Nova Roma, New Rome. The people who live there call themselves Romans. That can be confusing to the modern person. Wait, there are two Romes? And so we say, no, no, they live in Byzantium, they are Byzantines. Fine, but that's not what they said. They understood that the old Rome was a cesspool, a set of ruins, and it wasn't destroyed by barbarians. Okay, that this is the number one thing to understand. That the first Roman Empire was not destroyed by barbarian hordes. It was destroyed by the anarchy, which is you know a, a product of civil wars, epidemics, and just misrule, horrific levels of corruption. It died from the inside. It was not the invasion of barbarian hordes. So to keep them straight, historians, certain historians and myself included, talk about two different states. The Roman Empire, meaning that of like, you know, Jesus and Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus, and that ends, right, in the crisis of the third century, the, the anarchy. The second one we call Romania or Romania. This is not related to the modern country called Romania. Okay, so like the modern country of Romania, that's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about Bucharest. We're talking about a, a new state called Romania. And one of the things that's most important to understand about it is Romania is a Christian state. Romania does not move its capital. It, is, it remains Constantinople, Nova Roma, until its fall. The people who live there call themselves Romans. And more importantly, there is no longer this idea that only the citizens of one city have power. Everyone in this state is Roman. And almost none of them speak Latin, right? Romania is dominated by the Greek language. Where the Roman Empire, the first one, was split between Latin speakers and Greek speakers, Romania is predominantly Greek. 
So why am I not using this older division of east and west? Because it doesn't make sense. Romania was the larger of the two. Romania had just as much territory in the west as in the east. Gibbon says, no, the Western Empire falls apart. The Eastern Empire limps along without it. That's, that's just not the case. So, to repeat myself, the First Roman Empire <clears throat> falls with a whimper in the crisis of the third century. Again, we, we talked about this a little bit, but this is a period of total disaster, internal corruption. Something like 20 to 25 emperors die one after the other, right? They basically, one of the most dangerous jobs you can have in the third century is emperor of the Roman Empire. You are not going to live long, and your end is not going to be pretty. The person who pulls this out of the ashes is the Emperor Constantine. And he restructures the empire, building it in a way that had never been constructed before, making it predominantly one religion, no longer a citizenship, limited to the, the lucky few people of one city. There are legal protections for everyone. A legal code is actually written for the first time. Being called a Roman no longer requires living in Rome. Very few people live in the old Rome. I should make this clear. One of the reasons the barbarians are able to sack the city of Rome repeatedly is it's a backwater. There is nothing there of, of importance. It's, it's a historical tourist trap. And it is sacked multiple times, but sacking it doesn't really net anything for those people who, who, who invade the Italian peninsula. This is, there's no sacking of Constantinople, as is how I would put it. The city that actually matters is untouchable. Again, we say Constantinople today, we say Istanbul today to keep it simple in our heads. It was Rome, or Nova Roma, New Rome. The people who live there call themselves Romans. They live in Rome. Constantine did not name the city after himself, right? Maybe he's a colossal narcissist and megalomaniacal jerk, but he didn't name the city after himself. He called it Rome. Okay, so following the crisis of the third century, this is the reborn, call it Romania. Its capital is now here. This is still a part of the Roman Empire, but it's no longer the center. Very quickly now, if you are reading Gibbon, this becomes very confusing, because according to Gibbon, the heart and soul of the Roman Empire was the city of Rome and the Vatican under the Pope, the center of the Catholic Church. This is one of the difficult aspects because the, the, the centrality, the importance of the Pope is kind of difficult to nail down. What we have that survives are hundreds of letters going between the head patriarch here and the Pope in Rome 
they're supposed to be in constant discussion with each other, but there's not a sense that the Pope is in control. When a Pope dies, while there is an emperor, he names succeeding Popes. Today, Popes are chosen by election. That's because there is no Roman Empire. While there was a Roman Empire, Popes were nominated, they were declared by the living emperor. There is no separation of church and state. The church is the state, is the church, is the state. So, where does Gibbon come from? Why does he talk about a thousand years of decline? Why do we have this, this other model? Because with the recreation of Romania, the only part of the Roman Empire that is kicked out, as it were, England and France. Rome loses these furthest away territories. And they are the furthest away. If you move the capital to Constantinople, France is forever away. If your capital is Rome, you can get to southern France in a couple weeks. You can get to England maybe a month and a half, maybe two months. If you were coming from Constantinople, that is now going to be the better part of a year. It's just too far away. Now what's interesting is in this same period of time, let's say from around the year 300 to 400, all of the major empires of the world make a serious comeback. It's not just Rome. The Persian Empire is rebuilt. We have the beginnings of what will become the Tang Dynasty. And Western Europe is kind of unique in not recovering. They are not becoming part of the Roman Empire again. They are out of the picture. They will never again be ruled from Rome or Constantinople. Now why does that matter? Because Gibbon and our culture takes our roots from this area, rightly or wrongly. The focus on northern France and southern England, like for too many people, that is Europe. That's what Europe means. If I say, oh, I want to go to Europe this summer, people understood, oh, you mean Paris. They don't think you mean Bucharest. They don't think you mean Moscow. They don't think you mean it's for too many people, Europe is this incredibly narrow idea. And that was Gibbons as well. I should point out that the, this rebuilt Rome, Romania, is also where almost all of our surviving work by Romans comes from. Right? Our, our historical understanding of the first Roman Empire is almost entirely dependent on what the Second Roman Empire said about it. Chief among them would be St. Augustine. Single most prolific. Prolific as in this guy seemed like he was writing every day of his life and that almost every single one of his works survives. Now, we call him a saint today, but his life was not that of a saint. He was not a, a monk in that sense. He was a very... I don't know, the, the, the ancient equivalent of a very successful professor and like public intellectual. 
And his works are studied today. Right? You don't have to look far. Many colleges catalogs will have some class where all you do, even today, is read Augustine. During his lifetime, the capital was about to move from Milan to Ravenna and Constantinople. So he's living at this very early state of the rebuilt Romania. But he doesn't, he's not aware of, of Rome collapsing. How do I say this? He doesn't see himself as living in this time of, of chaos and despair. And so if we want to like, paint this picture of like Rome on its knees about to be wiped out by the barbarian hordes, well, what do we do with, with St. Augustine? Wouldn't he know? He's one of the most prolific writers really in history, traveling from city to city at a time that the History Channel tells us Romans are quivering with fear, hiding in their closets from the barbarian hordes. And who are these barbarian hordes? Well, they're not really barbarians in the sense that you might hear it said, like in a video game or in a movie. They're people, people who live outside of the Roman Empire. The Romans aren't really under, they're not very clear in their understanding of them either, right? They, they'll call them barbarians and they assume that all of them are sort of backwards, not educated, not Christian. They walk around wearing animal skins and they're just all incredibly violent. But those few Roman authors who actually meet these people tell a very different story. That they're quite erudite, actually quite well educated. That their cultures are just as ancient as those of the Romans. They have their own systems, their own law codes, their own beliefs. And many of these people will go on to become, let's say, the founders, the foundational elements of modern European nations and states. Like, you may not be familiar with Burgundy as a region in France, but it's one of the foundational aspects of like the ethnic identity of French people as being of Burgundian heritage, or Anglo-Saxons in England, or Lombards in Italy. At this point, they're all neighbors, all speaking very closely related dialects of, call it Proto-German. Now we don't think of France and Italy and Germany and England as being united. I find that very intriguing, right? This idea that, oh, these are completely different people. They have very different cultures, they eat different foods, they speak different languages. But you don't have to go that far back to have them all being basically neighbors of each other. So this period of the so-called barbarian hordes is often pointed out as like, yes, at this time, we have these massive migrations. But I would argue, like, well, no, there's nothing unique about this time. People have always migrated. We're not trees. You don't have to stay put. It's difficult to stay put. This is usually a choice made to stay put. And not just for modern people. 
right? People often think, well, it's because we have cars and planes and stuff, and now people move. The only thing that's really changed is the speed with which we move. We move more quickly. I don't think we move more. Because this specific set of movements coincided with what Gibbon understood as the sacking of Rome, they're blamed for it. Right? To a classical historian, barbarian horde means these people. Lombards, Burgundians, Anglo-Saxons, Vandals, Goths, Huns. Two general periods. Up to about the year 500, it's mostly Germanic, and the Baltic tribes are very closely related to them. After the year 500, it's more Slavic and Turkic. And here I'm describing the languages they speak. I, I'm not, I don't know about like, the cultural differences, the color of their hair or their skin. That is all secondary. We're defining them by the languages that they speak. Language and blood are not the same thing. Language and genetics are not the same thing. So you'll see maps like this one showing the barbarian hordes moving in. The problem is, while to the Romans, all of these people are barbarians and they're all sort of in cahoots with each other, archeological evidence and linguistic evidence makes it very clear that these are not all the same kind of people. Some of them have a history and a trajectory far more ancient than that of the Romans that they're supposedly invading. So now we're going to talk about the Xiongnu. We're going to be reading the occasional Chinese word in this class. Chinese has a specific way to transliterate Chinese sounds into the English alphabet. X is a sh sound, sh. So if you think of this as shongnu, maybe it'll make it more sense. It's not kongnu, it's shongnu. Okay. And if you think that's very interesting or strange, I'll remind you that Spanish used to do the same thing. This sound used to be an sh in Spanish. That's why it's Mexico, because they're the Mexica. So this idea of you know Don Quixote being what, Quixote? It's a, weird, it's a weird thing, right? Languages change the meaning of sounds over time. But if you think that X should not be an SH, I would argue that, well, there's a historical past to that as well. So, who are the Huns? The Huns are much more closely related to the Mongols or the Turks than they are to the Germanic and Baltic peoples that they were living among. Now, if you know very much about the history of the 20th century, especially World War I and World War II, you will know that many of the people fighting the Germans, I mean the Nazis in World War II, called them Huns. We gotta fight the Huns. They are not related. But Gibbon didn't know that. The ancient Romans didn't understand that. They don't look the same, they don't speak the same language, they don't have the same culture. If you or I saw 
ancient Germans next to ancient Huns, we would not make this mistake for a couple of important reasons. Number one, Huns are horse shepherds. They raise horses on horseback, living in grass fields, living in tents made out of felt like the Turks or Mongolians of Central Asia even today. The ancient Germans lived in the forests as hunters and farmers and fishermen. And if one in a hundred of them had a horse, I would be surprised. Horses are insanely expensive and very difficult to keep in the woods. If you live in Central Asia, that's where horses are from. You don't have to feed them, they feed themselves. So, Xiongnu equals Huns. What the Romans called Hun, the Chinese called Xiongnu. These are the same people. Now, the Romans and the Chinese were not in communication with each other. So how do we know this is true? Well, one, linguistic evidence, and two, archaeological evidence. There is a Xiongnu state north of China that is older than the Roman Empire. For a long time, the Xiongnu were considered to be relatives of the ancient Chinese, and that may end up being partially true, but it's more important to realize they have far more in common with the later Turks and Mongols. Again, many have believed wrongly that they were Germanic, that they lived in the forest amongst the German people speaking some sort of proto-Germanic. No. And yet, if you can watch a movie set in World War II, you will hear the Germans called Huns. Do not be misled by this. People can be wrong, it's okay. And again, when they call the Germans Huns, this is the worst thing they could think to call them. Because again, in the Roman understanding, a Hun was a savage, an uncivilized barbarian, a brute who lives only to kill and rape and pillage. But hopefully, now that you've read these four sources, you see it is much more complicated than that. The Huns had actually a pretty positive reputation among some Romans to the point where there were people who switched sides. They're like, you know what, the Huns, they're all right. I'd rather live with the Huns than with the Romans. I'm hoping that you notice that in the readings. So have you seen Mulan, the original one? The big bad guy with his falcon? That's a Hun, that's, that's Xiongnu. What's interesting is his name is Xiongnu, which is not a name, whatever, Disney, I, I don't want to blame this for it. But in the movie, his name is Shan Yu, which is not a name. It's like his name being King. Hi, this is my buddy, Chief. Shan Yu is the title that the kings of the Shangnu held. Was Attila the Hun a Shan Yu? Well, we don't know, unfortunately. The Chinese had a much better understanding of the Shangnu than the Romans had of the Huns. Well, I'll say that again. The Chinese had a much better understanding of the Xiongnu 
than the Romans had of the Huns. When the Huns showed up on the Roman doorstep, there's almost nothing known about them. They're an alien people from far away, and the Romans don't really seem to be concerned about them. All right, so this, I know it's a little intimidating. There is English under here. This is originally in Mongolian, right? So it's a map giving us a sense of where the Xiongnu originate from, north of China. The oldest sections of the Great Wall of China probably built to maintain trade in a border with the Xiongnu. Again, if you're watching your Disney Mulan movie, you'll remember, oh, right, right, the Xiongnu, they, they climb over the Great Wall. Yeah, because the Great Wall is not really meant to keep people out. It's basically to stop and uh, collect taxes from traders. Because you're not really going to keep out an army if you have a, a wall that's hundreds of miles long. The Xiongnu state, or Hanate, or whatever you want to call it, expands and slowly moves to the west, eventually reaching Iran, Afghanistan, parts of the Persian Empire. We're not entirely certain why this happens, okay? Again, we don't have a source written in the Xiongnu language that's preserved till today. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it has not been discovered but people also aren't looking for it. Why? Because both the Romans and the Chinese are convinced that the Xiongnu are barbarians. This is the problem, right? Once you label someone a barbarian, you assume that there is no way to know anything more about them. Okay, and this map's in German, don't be freaking out. Basically, this gives us the year, by which point we understand the Huns have come into various parts of, of Europe. This migration takes place over several centuries. This is not them running in terror. This is more of an expansion than a migration. We don't know how many people are involved. Conservative estimates are at least 100,000. It's a lot of people. Most of them never cross into mainland Europe. Most of them stay on the other side of the Danube and the Don for the obvious reason of they're horse shepherds. They raise horses to milk them, to eat them, right? That is their main sustenance. And it's very difficult to raise horses in the woods. It's not really a thing you can do, right? It, then you actually have to grow grass for them and cut it and feed them. Horses live naturally in the steppe, the prairie, right? The grasslands. The last Huns we know about convert to Christianity in the 680s and they fall out of the history books. So they're not wiped out, they don't die out, but once they convert to Christianity, they change their names and we don't hear anything more about them. So what makes the Huns unstoppable is they have a military unlike anything either the Chinese or the Romans had seen before which is every single person has a horse, probably two or three horses. No one is walking to battle. No one is walking home. So this is not a cavalry in the traditional sense of, oh, this army of 10,000 has 300 guys on horses. No, this army of 2,000 has everyone on a horse, which means that they never really have to get that close to you to kill you. 
right? In an age where all battles are basically hand-to-hand combat, they might look like cowards, but it doesn't really matter because you're going to be dead soon. They have far more complicated bows than the Romans or the Chinese have or understand, which is to say their bows are much smaller because they're not just made of wood, they're made of bone and sinew and muscle fibers, and they're able to shoot much more farther. Because they're small, they're easy to fire from horseback. Right? Don't think of guys with like gigantic longbows on the side of a horse. They have different kinds of arrows. The Chinese and Roman sources tell us about this. They specifically make blunted arrows to not kill people, just to knock them off their feet and then be captured. They have whistling arrows to communicate with other troops. They don't really wear armor. They don't need to because they can shoot farther than anybody else can and they're not gonna get close enough to be hit with a spear or a sword. They don't really use bladed weapons. It's not like they, it's not like the Huns don't know what a sword is, but like, what's the point? They are big fans of whips. And these are whips that can be 50 feet more, 50 feet long or more. Or if I'm thinking of this in terms of like, you know, somewhere between 12 and 17 meters, it's ridiculous. Right? And these whips are lethal. You get hit by this whip, you are going to die. For one thing, it's going to open a massive cut. And for the other, it's going to hit with such force, it'll probably snap your back or your neck. They have no stirrups. Stirrups have not been invented yet. This is the number one thing that makes them different from the Mongols. When Genghis Khan and the Mongols come, they have stirrups. So what does a stirrup allow you to do? Well, the stirrups on the horse let you stand up. That means when the Huns are riding around, their butt is in the saddle. Which actually means that their archery, probably not that good, not that accurate. This is what's going to really set the Mongols apart. When they come in with stirrups and the ability to stand up in the horse's seat, So again, the Huns are horse shepherds. They're not farmers, they're not fishermen. So this idea that the Huns are gonna conquer Europe never really makes sense. Because Europe doesn't have what they want or need. If they move into Europe, their lifestyle will change to the point where they won't be Huns anymore. When the Roman troops in Syria, on the fringes of the desert, write about them, They laugh at the teeny tiny horses of the Huns. Like, oh, they're like little baby horses. The difference being that unlike the Roman horses, the Huns don't have to feed theirs. They they feed themselves. They don't have to be cared for. The the horse is, is like a part of the army. It's not this special pet of the rich and famous. So when you see this word, Hunnic Empire, please understand, this does not mean all of these people are Huns. They're not. All of these people are controlled by the Huns, but the Huns make up a very, very small minority of the total population. And the Roman sources will actually separate out the Western Huns from the Eastern Huns. Basically, 
These Huns, the Romans never really come into contact with because they never really crossed the Don and Danube. Attila and his band are this very small section in the westernmost steppe. Picts, Goths, Gauls, Huns, Vandals, Barbarians, people who ended civilization, bloodthirsty monsters who live only to rape and pillage and plunder, responsible for the Dark Ages, destroying the entire world. I would argue that nothing could be further from the truth. The main difference is, under Romania, this second Roman Empire, unlike the first, nominally Christian leadership prevents them from wholesale slaughter of their neighbors. I'm not saying they don't still try. The difference is, the previous Roman religion was specific to Rome. They don't come into a countryside and say, you all have to become like us. These are our gods, you have your gods, we're not gonna fight about it. Christianity is a universal religion. We're all supposed to be capable of it. We all have an obligation, if we are Christian, to spread it. And that should mean you should not wipe out the people you run into, because every person you meet, every foreigner you run across is another potential Christian. People will awful also describe these barbarians as just so much stronger, so much more vigorous, so much more militarily skilled than the Romans. I, that's nonsense, okay? Like, yes, the Huns are amazing in their military capacity, but it, it doesn't allow them to like, conquer walled cities, okay? Like, they are very good at wiping out an army they find in the field. But the Huns are not known for their ability to, to like, you know, knock on the doors of Constantinople and say, let me in. That's not a thing they did. In terms of military strength, Rome is nothing to be ashamed of. All of their great defeats happen through, well, the way these things always happen. Bad luck, mistakes, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the same way that most of their victories are achieved through, I would say, good luck being in the right place at the right time. The true height of Romania, of the Second Roman Empire, hits around the year 850, maybe, let's call it 900. This is not the story as Gibbon tells us. This is not the story you'll find on Wikipedia. There the height is, well, I don't know, the, the five good emperors sometime in the first century. And this height of 800 to, say, 900 is the result of so-called barbarians taking over Rome. Slavic peoples, Turkic peoples, Vikings. We're going to get there. The boundaries of the Roman Empire are not decided by military conquest. May I say that? Because that's another big false idea, another big lie. People think that Rome was strong enough to move its borders to the extent of its military. All of its borders were logistic, were the action, the physical, natural border, it's too hard to cross this point. We're not going to cross the Sahara Desert. We're not going to cross the Danube River. 
We're not going to cross the ocean. And basically, they expand until they hit either a natural border or another state. And whenever they find another state, like the Parthians or the Armenians, where you expect, well, hey, that's Rome. They, their military might should allow them to conquer these. They're not interested in that. You can make way more money through trade than taxes. So let's talk about some other barbarians besides Huns. Gauls and Celts are the same people. Gaul and Celt is the same word, pronounced differently. The g and k sound are the same sound, just one of them is voiced and one of them is voiceless. Gaul and Celt are the same. That's one of the more confusing things is you'll have people talking about, well, those people in France, they're of Gaulish background, but the people in Ireland, they're Celtic. Okay, sure, but both that's, that's the same. Those, that's the same thing. All of the people we know of as Gauls, their name for themselves is Celt. Gaul is a Latin attempt to say this word. In the Roman understanding, Gaul is the name of a place, what we now call France, separate from all the other Celts. There are Celts all over the place. Celt seems to be the dominant culture before the arrival of the Roman Empire. If you want to, we could we could leave, we could make a guess and say Utsi the Iceman. If he was anything, maybe he was a Celt. I don't know. What's interesting is the Romans distinguished between Celts and these so-called Germanic peoples. And I say it's interesting because as an anthropologist or an archaeologist, it is not easy to tell the difference between these two groups. They seem to worship the same kinds of gods. They have the same kind of material culture. Their languages are very closely related. But somehow Romans distinguish between them, but not between the Germans and the Huns. So you have this idea that like racial or ethnic categories existed in the ancient world. I'm telling you, the evidence is that they didn't. Not as we would understand them. They weren't separating people out by their looks, except in the case of the Picts. The Picts are a very mysterious people, largely because they were such a small population by the time the Romans found them. And they live on mostly in like Scottish national folklore. So the Picts survive only through these sort of mysterious carvings. Fish, sword, mirror, maybe. No Pictish language is recorded. We have no idea what it sounded like. We have the names of some kings written down in Latin. We have a few place names in Scotland that have the word pit in them, so we assume that this is somehow Pictish. We have about 180 of these tombstones that may or may not be tombstones. Because generally they're nowhere near bones. They're just stones that have the same symbols over and over again. Swords and mirrors and fish and wolves and moons and so on and so forth. But the people who live in these areas today, the Scottish, do 
tend to claim direct descent from these people. This is a problem. Because from what we can tell from the Roman sources, the people we now call Scots are descended from these Celtic people who invaded the area and wiped out the Picts. According to the Roman sources, the Picts were a very strange bunch of people. Much shorter than everyone else, hairy, wiry black hair. I mean, basically, some of the Romans considered them essentially dwarves who lived underground. I, I don't think that's true, but again, the Romans, their inability to sort of uh, be bothered to write true ethnographic works about foreign peoples is always a problem. So what do we do? This is basically a almost prehistoric people. And yet for the Romans, it's just another group of barbarians. This is a map that supposedly is about the Celts, but I think we can use the same map to talk about all Indo-European peoples and the people who come before them. What we essentially see is there is the central area of Europe that creates some or another culture or language or way of living. And over time, this spreads out. These bits of dark green happen to be the final survivors of non-Celtic, non-Indo-European language speakers. Over here, Britain. Down here, the Basques. Britain as in Brittany, not to be confused with Great Britain. And then, of course, the Picts and the Hibernians. But to the Romans, they're all barbarians. Oh, sorry. So the reason I show you this map is to just make it very clear that all of these language groups, they're related linguistically. And 2,000 years ago, probably even more mutually intelligible than, than we assume they were. Latin and Greek may not look like the same language to you, but I promise you that somewhere, probably in this area here, there were people who spoke something between them who understood both. He's the big bad guy. What's interesting is those four sources you read they're not the only sources on Attila that have survived. Sort of almost miraculously, German folklore of the kind that like, you know, Tolkien was researching back in the day also records Attila. The Ring of the Nibelungen, Siegfried and you know, the Valkyries, all of that kind of Valhalla nonsense. The Great Saga is about the invasion of this animal-like monster from the south called Attila. But I'm going to remind you that if we start with just the Roman sources, when Attila and the Huns arrive on the Roman doorstep, they come peacefully. Right? The first time they show up in the history books is as signers of a peace treaty where the Romans are going to pay them so much money every year to foment trade and to prevent bloodshed. The problem is, that's expensive. And within a couple of years, the Romans, they renege on the deal, and Attila invades. Right? Again, as far as Attila is concerned, like this is he's totally justified to do this. This is not raping and pillaging for the fun of it. This is, oh, you won't pay me what you owe me? Then I'll just come and take it. 
Again, I'm going to remind you, the Huns are not conquering cities. They're not battering down walls. But if they should happen upon an undefended location or an army not within walls, that army is good as dead. But basically, for the first couple decades that the Huns show up, they're just trying to make some sort of long-lasting relationship with Rome. But Rome just can't... You might say, well, why do they keep on signing these treaties? Well, because they're powerless to do anything else. The Romans do not see how they can stop Attila. There's nothing that they have that Attila wants other than money, and they don't want to give it to him. Constantinople is not at risk, or Nova Roma, Byzantium, whatever you want to call it. Right, the core of the Roman Empire is made up of cities that have walls around them. They are, they are not sitting there shaking in their boots, terrified of the coming of the Huns. But we are told of a vague invasion by the Huns deep into Roman territory when an entire legion is wiped out, led by the emperor. It's in response to this that the new emperor sends Priscus basically to write up a new treaty. And that miraculously survives. That's what you read. You read this part of this long document written up by basically a foreign service agent by the name of Priscus, who spends time amongst the Huns. And what he finds is pretty interesting, right? You may have noticed he finds a Greek-speaking Hun who says, yeah, yeah, I used to, I used to be in the Roman Empire kind of sucked. But then I got captured by the Huns. I knew everything was great. I married this Hun wife. I've got Hun kids. Don't have to pay taxes anymore. We just, we just have fun. Boy, oh boy, am I glad I'm a Hun now. Not what you'd expect to read about a bunch of barbarians. He also describes how attentive Attila is to his children, specifically one kid, but his youngest. But the, the long and short of it is Priscus comes back and like nothing changes. It's the same old relationship. Rome promises to pay Attila and then fails to do so. Here's where things get a little bit tricky. This next bit does not come from Priscus. This next bit comes from someone writing two centuries later. But this is the person that Gibbon read. And so this is what enters into the history books. Attila marches on Roman Gaul, which is to say France. And it makes, I would say, zero sense. Because according to this source, Attila and the Huns are all on foot. There isn't any horse mentioned. They're all carrying swords. There's no motive given. They're not there to really conquer. They, they just march in and march out. And I would say, gosh, that doesn't look like the Huns to me. You're telling me they crossed the entirety of Europe, walked over the Alps, without horses or their bows and arrows, just because? But that source says that. The source says this is the conquest of Attila. It's not an eyewitness. It's somebody writing 200 years after it happened. And so I'll say, these aren't Huns. The country of France is called France for a reason. It was conquered at some point by the Franks. Exactly when did the Franks move into the area? Kind of unknown. French history says it was a peaceful migration. 
and maybe it was, but to me, this is much more likely to have been the works of these newcoming Franks than, than Huns. To make this clear, right? When the Huns are signing their peace treaties with the Romans, they are down here. This is the only place in Europe that they can live. These are grassy fields, perfect for horse shepherding, and this is where they're, this is the only place they're going. They're not going to move anywhere else. And the 440s, they're totally focused on Constantinople. And yet we're told somehow that they walk here, and the next time that the Romans talk about them, they're sending a, a, a party into the Italian peninsula. Again on horseback, again with bows and arrows, again in a way that makes sense. So if you ask me, those bits in yellow, or we call that orange, I, just, I, don't, I don't buy it. I don't think that's what happened. But the reason everyone thinks it happened is A, the Christian sources that say Attila is you know, the, um, the scourge of God. As they call him, the scourge of God. He has been sent by God to whip us. A scourge is a kind of whip, right? He's been sent by God to basically to punish us, whip us for our sins. And Gibbon picks this up. He says, yep, absolutely. Attila is responsible for wiping out the Western Roman Empire. The last victory of the Roman military is their defense of Gaul against the Huns. And I would say if the Huns had been there, the Romans wouldn't have, they wouldn't have won. There's no walled city there for them to defend. Rome has a problem. I mean, the old Rome has a problem. Much like New York City today, it's not a producer of food, right? If New York City were suddenly disconnected from the rest of the United States, the people there, if they stung around, hung around, would starve to death. They depend on food coming in from outside. Rome was the same way. The Italian peninsula does not produce food. Now you think today, oh, but they make all that pasta. Yes, they do. From grain, which is grown somewhere else, and sent there, then turned into pasta. In the same way, it just was not a producer of food. The main producers of food were North Africa, parts of France and Spain. To make peace with different barbarian groups, Rome began giving territory away. And when they would do this, they would say, well, now that we're giving you this territory, you work for us, so go and do this thing. The problem being that no barbarian ever actually followed orders, because why would they? They're not in that position of weakness. They don't have to. So you sort of have this uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, where we work with the Gauls to fight the Vandals, and then the Vandals fight us. And the long and short of it is, with this annihilation of the Italian peninsula, this is what Gibbon focuses on, this idea that Rome is being depleted by barbarians. But I'm going to remind you, Rome has already been knocked down by the crisis of the third century. When Rome falls to the barbarian hordes, no one blinks in Constantinople. This is not a big deal. Rome, at this point, has not been the capital of the empire for 200 plus years. It's really not that big of a deal. I'm sure it's sad, but the empire is going to be fine. Rome is sacked something like 12 times in the 5th century. Largely because the walls don't function anymore and there's no one there to defend it and no one really cares. I mean, yeah, Rome is important. You think, oh, but what about the Pope? Different question for a different time. 
I'll just make it clear. This is where our word vandalism comes from, if that wasn't clear, right? So the specific group of barbarians, so-called barbarians, that sacks Rome, they are called the Vandals. They're just another Germanic tribe, no different from the Lombards or the Burgundians. But because they're the ones who sack Rome, their name goes down to history as Vandals. If someone calls you a Vandal, that is not a compliment. So sometimes 450, sometimes 467, sometimes 476, doesn't really matter, right? The, if you're Gibbon, you want to find the bookend, the, the end of the Roman Empire. And he says, oh, it's this great little story. The military commander of the forces takes the boy emperor and ducks him off into a monastery and sends his crown and his scepter and his royal cushion off to Constantinople and the Western Empire is no more. Again, this story is it's cute and it's attractive, but it completely misses the point that no one cares. Rome has not been the capital for centuries. This little boy emperor, he's not even Roman, right? He's a descendant of a different barbarian group that had previously been given Rome by Constantinople. This is not the story we make it out to be. So as the Franks take Francia, we now call France, we're told that there's this last bastion of sort of Roman culture way up north near Londinium, we now call London, in England. Supposedly, if King Arthur is a real person, which is a big supposedly, this is where this is the period they live in. We have this history of a leader named Ambrosius, whose right-hand man is named Uther. And Uther's son, and Ambrosius' nephew, is a young boy named Arthur. And Arthur's main enemy, the person he is fighting and fighting against, Anglo-Saxons, the people that you know now make up the sort of ethnic bulwark of the English people. Which I kind of kind of funny, right? This idea that if King Arthur is real, the people who put him on the grave are the English. And yet we call King Arthur the once and future king of England, you know, the rightful king of England. It's a neat little story. Unfortunately, nothing like this is written until, until the 1100s. Not saying it's not true, but I know some people really like the story of King Arthur, so I thought I'd throw that in there. Okay, let's wrap this up. From the point of view of Romania, from the point of view of the second Roman Empire centered in Nova Roma, we call Constantinople, nothing that bad has happened. They are not in decline. The Roman Empire is stronger than it's ever been because every so-called barbarian king works for the emperor. They request and receive official symbols of power. And to get these symbols of power, you must be baptized. So they're not really barbarians anymore. They're Christians. They get a new name. They get a fancy white piece of clothing to mark their baptism. So in fact, the Western Empire, we could say it's in the hands of no good Germanic barbarians. But in theory, these barbarians all work for the emperor. And they're all Christian. The Romans in the East, we can call them Byzantines if we want, but that's not why they call themselves. They know the empire hasn't fallen. They've achieved what Constantine wanted. 
a large state unified under Christianity. Not even the great Emperor Constantine had seen such a large empire. So again, a reminder, when I talk about Gibbon all the time, and you're like, oh, what does it matter? No one reads him. It matters because that image of the West falling hinges upon the idea that Christianity is a net negative force in world history. That it has done more bad than good. And I'm not saying that it is or isn't, but it's interesting to me that, at least in this country, especially in England as well, people don't really feel that way anymore. People don't really think, like, you know what's bad in world history? Christians. They're the worst. Well, maybe they're good or maybe they're bad, but Gibbon actively thought that Christianity was a negative force in world history. And that's where we have this idea, like, why does the Roman Empire fall? Because of Christianity. And here I'm telling you, well, actually, they thought it was doing just fine, largely because, oh, so the barbarians have moved in. But they also got baptized. So that's a win, right? That's a W. It's complicated. And that's, I guess, that's the main point, right? <laughs> Asterisk complicated. I will see you all on Friday. But before you go, let me just say, I have no plans for us to meet in person on any of our Fridays. If I need to change that, I will. But expect that this Friday it will be online. Next Friday will be online as well. And if you have strong opinions about that, let me know. I'm guessing most folks will not shed a tear if we could go if it's just like last Friday. Don't forget to study for your map quiz. And be in touch if you need anything from me, please.